Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSellaCast podcast, hosted at PodFeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, December 2nd, 2018, and this is show number 708. Well, I'm experimenting with some new audio sources and things here. I don't want to tell you what it is yet, but the live show is definitely getting an entertaining uh, episode this week. Uh, We'll hopefully see how this sounds. Hopefully it uh, comes out okay in the wash. In this week's installment of Programming by Stealth, Bart Bouchotz takes us into the land of bootstrap drop-down menus. He explains the differences between drop-downs and selects in HTML and how there's two different kinds of drop-downs, menus and navigation. The descriptions of how to make the bootstrap drop-downs take a while for him to work his way through, but when he puts all the pieces together, the code is actually quite sensible. You can find this episode in your podcatcher of choice under Programming by Stealth or the full chit-chat across the pond feed. And as always, you can listen right over at podfeed.com. If you ever hear anyone tell you that they love their scanner, you know they're lying to you. If they also tell you that they can wirelessly scan, then you know that they're completely delusional. Over the years, I've heard people moaning and groaning when their scanners are no longer supported. I've always scoffed at them because they hang onto their equipment so long. Move along, I'd say. Toss it out. Then it happened to me. Fujitsu dropped a whole bunch of scanners with Mojave, including my, and I won't call it beloved, ScanSnap S1300. It's a perfectly good scanner and it didn't work anymore. I did not love the ScanSnap. I did not even like the ScanSnap. I saw it as a necessary evil. In particular, I disliked the ScanSnap software. It came with about 27 little apps that were all interdependent, and they all had to do updates that would download lots of DMGs that would then auto-mount, and all these little installers would run. Drove me crazy. I didn't even know what half of them were for, and I suspect they were actually breeding at one point. Well, the actual scanner software was annoying, too. In theory, you could set up profiles to do exactly what you wanted, but I never really got the hang of it. It also seemed to get confused and would stop partway through scanning a big document. Plus, scanning is just darn annoying. I'm sure most of you are thinking, what the heck are you doing scanning? Haven't you gone paperless yet, Allison? Nope, we haven't. For some reason, our old school brains still need paper to show up or we forget to pay the bills. I'm sure that at some point we'll be forced to learn, but until they pry the paper out of our cold, dead hands, we're still writing on them by hand when we've paid them and then scanning them in and taking them over to our uh, Drobo to our network attached storage. The good news is I built a bunch of really fun Hazel scripts to check the OCR file, that's the optical character recognition files, and rename them and then move them automatically to the Drobo. That's pretty much the only fun part of scanning. Like I said, I truly dislike that scanner software solution from Fujitsu. So when they left me high and dry, scanner was 10 years old, I decided not to give them more of my money. I went to the wire cutter and I searched for scanners. Now, I swear that's how I found the scanner that I bought, but oddly, I can't find the article where they talked about it now. I can't find any scanners there. Anyway, I swear it was them that they recommended the Epson ES300W. Now, it's important to the story to know that about 23 years ago, I vowed I would never buy from Epson again. And an Epson printer that was quite new, but when the printhead clogged, I discovered that changing out the printer cartridge did not change the printhead. It did on all the HP scanners, but on the Epson scanners, that printhead was dead. So my brand new, not brand new, but I mean really, really, really young printer was completely useless. I called them, I wrote to them, I threatened in my head to drive over to see them because they're headquartered right down the street, but I never did. They never responded in any way, shape, or form. But 
In 2018, it's a time of forgiveness and coming together. I decided to give them another chance. Plus, now I'm mad at Fujitsu, so I needed an alternative. The Epson ES300W is not cheap at $270, but it has some really big advantages. It's very small at 2.5 by 3.5 by 11 inches. It has a rechargeable battery and has its own built-in wireless access point. Scanning is annoying enough as it is without making, or well, you've got to make room for the stack of papers, room for the papers that fly out of the scanner, and room for the power cable and the USB cable. If you can get those last two out of your way, you've made your life a lot easier. The Epson ES300W has a nice hardware design, in my opinion. The cover is held in place by a firm but easy-to-slide latch. When you flip it open, it has these two flanges that, that flip up that give support to the pages without, uh, that you're about to scan. Holding your pages parallel is important in a scanner, and unlike the kind of janky sliders on the Fujitsu I had, the ones on the Epson are easy to slide and align your pages. There are a lot of weirdly designated buttons on this device. Eventually, I was able to figure them out, but it wasn't easy. When the device is open, you see four buttons on top. The first one's power, and that's fairly obvious with the normal kind of power symbol, but the other three were kind of mysterious to me. The second one isn't actually a button, and I only figured that out because at one point I had an error and that little button lit up. I had to check the manual to find out it's the error light. <laughs> well, that was embarrassing. It's an error light. Came on when the error happened. Anyway, that button also doubles as a light to tell you that the automatic feeder is engaged. So you can set it up where every time you stick something into the scanner, it just starts sucking it in immediately. The fourth button is a blue squarish U-shape with an arrow inside of it. That was completely mysterious to me, but it turns out that's the scan button. I cracked the code on it all by myself by accidentally hitting it at one point, and it started scanning. Now, the third button I definitely had to look up. It's an orange circle with a triangle inside it. Evidently, that's the symbol for stop. In between the stop and scan buttons is a blue light that tells you the scanner is ready for you. Over on the left side of the top, there's a toggle, and for the life of me, I could not figure out what it was for. It had what it looked like what looked like two pieces of paper as an icon on the right-hand side, but the left-side icon looked like a typewriter but like turned 90 degrees. I flipped it back and forth a bunch and it gave a satisfying little chunk sound when I slid it, so I suspected it was moving something inside to change the scanning options. I noticed the little typewriter symbol on the front near the rollers too, so this same weird symbol was in both places. Back to the manual. You've probably guessed it by now, but that little typewriter symbol on its side is supposed to be a business card. Once you know it's a business card, it kind of looks like a business card, not a, not a typewriter. Anyway, I slid the slider over there, I shoved a business card in it, and it sucked it partway in automatically. I hit the scan button and it pulled it in, popped it back out, and I had my scan. It was a beautiful thing. I tried it a second time, and it sucked it all the way in and wouldn't give it back. I had to crack open the scanner to get it out. I tried again. This time, it gave me a paper jam. Tried it a fourth time. Another paper jam. Okay, I'm done. No business card scanning for me, I guess. Maybe I could spend some time figuring it out, but I don't really need to scan business cards, so I'm not really motivated to keep working on this. Let's flip over to the software side for a little bit. I downloaded the Drivers and Utilities Combo Package Installer, and like Fujitsu, it wasn't just one app. Not entirely sure how many apps it installed at first, because I've been compelled to install more since then. I'll explain why in a minute. The main software you start with is called ScanSmart. This is where you can set up a scanner to work wirelessly. I charged the scanner up first, and then I got to work. On the right-hand side of the scanner, there's a three-way switch. 
To the right is USB. To the left is Wi-Fi, which is used when you want to connect it to your home network. In the middle of those two, though, the toggle can go to three positions, is a Wi-Fi symbol that says AP next to it. In this mode, you connect your computer to the wireless access point that the scanner creates. Setting up the, the Epson ES300W to the network is similar to other IoT devices, but it takes kind of a weird turn in the middle. You launch their software and do the same little dance where you tell it your network name and password, then you have to enter the name and password of the wireless access point of the scanner. During that setup, you have to have the scanner in the access point mode. So that's kind of weird. With this point in the process, I did a bunch of scanning via the access point method, and it worked to champ. Of course, I wasn't. Uh, you're not really on your Wi-Fi network if you're connected to the access point, so that might be a problem for you. I happen to be hardwired, so I sort of had the best of both worlds. My Wi-Fi network was the scanner, but my hardwired network was still there. Now, in theory, according to the manual, once you've got it working as an access point and you've told it your, your real network password on the 2.4 gigahertz band, you should be able to flip that switch to the regular Wi-Fi setting and then the scanner will magically be on your network. But that didn't work for me. I suspect that if I reset everything and start it over and, I don't know, maybe follow the manual, I probably could crack the code on this and get it to work. But to be perfectly honest, I don't love you enough to go through all that. Plus, it actually works as a wireless access point, and I don't have some weird device on my network. So maybe that's not the worst thing in the world to use it as an access point. Now, I did enjoy the error message when I tried to get it on my network. It said, unable to connect to network scanner. Check the scanner network and connection settings. Okay, that's a pretty good message. But instead of an OK button, they had a yes, no option. I didn't think that was really helpful. I tried yes, and I tried no. It didn't do anything either way. All right, enough about the annoying aspects of setting up IoT devices. Let's talk about scanning. I launched the Epson ScanSmart app, toggled a few settings, and stuck four pieces of double-sided paper in it, and I hit the scan button. All I can say is, dang, is this thing fast. It blew me away how fast it sucked the paper in and spit it back out. It was just like, rent, 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 rent. I mean, it was incredible. It was so fast. Way, way faster than my old Fujitsu scanner. Now, I showed it to Pat Dengler, and she did a comparison video with her much newer and still supported Fujitsu, and it was wicked fast too. But I'm still going with wow on the speed of the Epson ES300W. I included a little video in the show notes, and uh, rem remember, when you look at this video, remember, it's not connected to power or USB. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, not, it's not wired at all. It's wireless. It's really fun. Fast and wireless. Love it. Remember I told you at the beginning, somebody's delusional if they love their scanner and, it, and they say they can do it wirelessly? Oh, well. In order to really enjoy scanning, though, you need your document scanned with Optical Character Recognition, or OCR. I didn't see an option to do OCR in the ScanSmart software, so I went back to the manual and I learned that I needed to download yet another piece of software. Remember when I said I didn't know how many apps I started with? This is why. I needed to download Epson Scan 2. And I think that's kind of like a, 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 it's leaving you open for the object of that sentence. Scan to what? You want to scan to something. So the Epson Scan 2 software is what I needed. And when you do that, they make you download the new firmware installer app at the same time. Sure, I'm glad there are firmware updates, but now I have six apps installed plus an uninstaller app. No worries, though. Once I had the Scan 2 software installed and I had dutifully run the firmware update, I was delighted to see the option under image format to choose searchable PDF. Good on them for not using a technical term like OCR. Took a geek like me to realize what they meant. Uh, took, it took a little while for a geek like me to realize what they meant, of course, but I thought it was a much more friendly user interface term. 
The Scantu software interface is easy to understand and use. As you flip through the different options, you can save your scan settings so you can reuse that option again. I turned on double-sided scanning and I upped the default resolution from 200 to 300 dpi and chose searchable PDF. I let it auto-detect the color of my documents. I ran a couple of OCR scans and did a few little searches and it seemed to be working. But then I scanned some real bills and I watched what Hazel would do with them. The first two bills were complete failures. The Rose and Hazel were watching for three text string matches and all three had to be found before Hazel could rename and move the files. All three text string matches, well, didn't match. I changed the color to grayscale and I tried again with no success. I kept fiddling around with all the settings and I found that black and white worked a bit better for the recognition of the optical characters. Then I found a setting pretty buried that seemed to help. When selecting the image format as a searchable PDF, you can drill into options and there's even more settings. I found a checkbox that said, generate PDF slash A file. I have no idea what they mean by that since I was already generating a PDF, but it seemed to create a file that provided better character recognition than the other settings. I was even able to go back to grayscale. I think overall that the the uh, Abbey Fine Reader OCR the I'll say it this is hard to say Abbey Fine Reader OCR software that is licensed by Fujitsu is better than the built-in software from Epson. I got to thinking, hey, why don't I just buy Abbey Fine Reader directly? but it's another $120 for the Mac. So that would be a no. I think I've got Epson's OCR software working, so I'm not touching it now. One of the many Epson applications that downloaded is called Epson Event Manager app, which you can think of as like a poor woman's hazel. You can monitor up to three folders and have three different actions applied. The actions aren't terribly advanced. You can only open a folder, send an email, or open another application. I played around with it for a little bit, but I never succeeded in getting it to do anything interesting. If you're spending real money on a big girl scanner, drop the $42 for Hazel from Noodlesoft and really have some fun setting up your rules. Bottom line time, I still hate scanning, but I love the speed of the Epson ES300W. The scanning software once installed is cleaner in my opinion than the Fujitsu software and easier to understand, but the OCR has some improvements to be made. I would have liked some guidance from Epson on what the best settings are for OCR because I was able to find good settings that did work, but you would think that it would be a little bit easier to find. And I did read the manual looking for it. For $270 for a scanner, this is not an inexpensive device, but if you want a really fast, portable, truly wireless, battery-powered document scanner, I think the Epson ES300W is a fine choice. And of course, there's an Amazon affiliate link to it in the show notes. There's a tool I've used for a really long time, but I've never mentioned it before. It's called Fission from Rogue Amoeba. You know, I'm a huge fan of Audio Hijack from Rogue Amoeba, and I literally could not do the podcast nearly as well without it. Fission has been a minor player in my workflow, but I just figured out something it could do that might make you happy. Fission is an audio editing application. It is not a digital audio workstation, or DAW as they call it, A DAW is uh, something that lets you edit and assemble multi-track audio. I really wish Rogue Amoeba would write a DAW, but they haven't done that yet. You would think they'd be working on it. Anyway, because Fission only can edit one track at a time, its value for me has been fairly limited. But Fission does something that most editors don't, and that's losslessly edit audio. When I create the podcast audio, I record in AIFF format, which is an uncompressed format. I use Hindenburg to assemble the tracks, export to M4A, and then compress to MP3 with the album artwork. 
Now, you don't want me recompressing that MP3 or the audio quality would go down. Vision, Fission allows you to edit an MP3 or other formats without recompressing the audio. I really need to do this, but once in a while I've completely finished my workflow and noticed maybe there's a gap in the audio or some bit I'd like to cut out. Rather than going back to Hindenburg and rerunning all of the steps, I might just open it up in Fission to do the edit. When you cut a section out of a recording using Fission, you can have it automatically fade in and out at the cut point so you don't get this harsh clip where you do the cut. It's extremely intuitive to use. You can even use it to normalize your audio. Normalizing increases the gain of the selected audio so that the loudest sample is set at the maximum possible value. This is all done without distortion because these folks know audio. You may never create audio yourself, but I guarantee you'd appreciate this effort by those who do. I also find Fission to be the quickest way for me to look at a test recording to see if the audio levels are pretty close between me and my guest on Chit Chat Across the Pond. I run a test recording every single time I do an interview. Even if I've recorded an hour before with the exact same person, I run the test again because audio is just weird and seems to go bad all by itself. Dropping the test recording onto Fission and taking a quick visual and listening look, it, it just takes a few seconds, but it can save me from catastrophe. For a long time, I've known that you could add splits to an audio file in Fission. I never saw the value of doing this, though, because it actually caused problems for me. If you split the audio, when you export it from Fission, it creates multiple files. That's the last thing I want in producing a podcast episode. But this week, I had a brain fart that turned into an awesome discovery. Here's the brain fart part. While I already do chapter marks in the NoSilicast, I haven't been doing them in Programming by Stealth or Chit Chat Across the Pond Light. There's really no obvious spot for them in Chit Chat because it's just one long rambling conversation. No, totally organized conversation. But it occurred to me that it would be very helpful in Programming by Stealth. You see, we always start with some idle jibber-jabber, then we talk about the previous week's homework challenge, then we talk about the new material. It seemed to me that it would be helpful to be able to jump to the new material if you liked. Maybe you don't want to hear the homework challenge, you want to jump to the new stuff. Well, in a moment of recklessness, while recording with Bart, I simply announced during the show that I was going to start doing those three chapter marks in Programming by Stealth. Now, the reason that was reckless was that I completely forgot that there was a really good reason I don't already do chapter marks in the non-nosilicast episodes. It's because for the non-nosilicast episodes, I use the desktop version of Auphonic Leveler, which strips off the chapter marks. For the nosilicast, I use the web-based version of, of Auphonic Leveler that preserves the chapter marks. But it's quite costly, so I've never put the investment in because it didn't make sense when it's not really that many chapters. I mean, it's not that big a deal. Well, as I was starting to write up the show notes for Programming by Stealth, I was going to write down that this is never going to work because I realized I couldn't come through with the promise I had made. For some reason, though, a little tiny elf in my brain said, Fission does lossless editing. Maybe it can do chapters. Well, guess what? It can. Remember I mentioned you can split the audio file, but I never saw the reason to do that? Well, if you do split it, you can enter tags for each split point and that gives you a place for a title, a URL, and even artwork if you're so inclined. It's on two separate tabs. One's on uh, tags and the other one's on the podcast tab. Anyway, but remember, there's a problem. It creates multiple files. So how's that going to work? Turns out that under file, there's an option to save as chapterized MP3 or AAC. I feel like such a dummy for not noticing this sooner. 
Rogue Amoeba has fabulous documentation on their software products. And while I've read the one for Audio Hijack from cover to cover, I never took the time to read the one for Fission. I tested out doing the chapter marks for this week's programming by stealth, and sure enough, it worked perfectly. I was able to add these chapter marks and losslessly re, uh, you know, re-export the MP3. I am thrilled to have such an easy and intuitive way to do this for you guys using a tool that's been sitting right in front of me all this time. Vision is available from Rogue Amoeba for just $29, and it does a bunch of other stuff I've even talked about. If you don't own Audio Hijack yet, and you've always wanted it, they have a bundle of both applications, Fission and Audio Hijack, for 70 bucks, saving you 25%. You should go buy it. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Blue Shots. How are you doing today, Bart? I am doing just fine, despite the fact that the Irish winter is doing the one thing it's not supposed to do, right? So we're supposed to alternate between cold and sunny and wet and mild. We've had cold and wet. That's just not fair. <laughs> well, guess what happened here? It, ran, it rained 0.77 inches here yesterday. I think it did that here this morning. And yesterday <laughs> morning. Up. And the morning that's, after. That's two centimeters. In California, after the fires. I was going to say, so that that's the, nice. Is that not Mudslide Central then? Yeah, that shouldn't be good. It's okay. not going to be good. That's the one thing. Our, our mud is so used to being wet, it doesn't go anywhere. Wherever it was going to go, it's already there. <laughs> it's already slid to it, right? Yeah, it's, uh, that, that poor city of paradise, apparently a lot of the rain ended up there. But I don't know how much is left to wash away at this point. I suppose if you're going to have a, a flood to go with all the other biblical curses, you may as well have it all together before you get a chance to rebuild. But Jesus. <laughs> really? <laughs> all right. Well, uh, Bart has a uh, dodgy router going on right now, so we're going to dig in before uh, it goes belly up. We'll find out and see whether this actually works. So, so you hear that? That's me knocking on wood. And it's it's an <laughs> Ikea desk, so it actually might be wood. <laughs> Ground up and spit back into a desk wood, right? No, I, well, it says it was beach. So a beech tree was involved at some stage, perhaps a one millimeter <laughs> thick layer of beech tree. But anyway, it looks nice. All right, let's uh, let's go ahead and dig in. Okay, uh, starting up with some follow ups. Um, again, like we sort of thought we would be, we're still talking about Spectre and Meltdown. So um, the Linux kernel, uh, the latest release, added in support for some new mitigations that Intel suggested against some of the variants of Spectre. And uh, in so doing, it was discovered that for certain what they call workloads, as in certain tasks, there's a wee bit of a performance hit. 50%. Oh, no. Seriously? Seriously. So Linus Torvalds has proposed disabling the mitigation by default, but allowing those who want to do it to turn it on. And I believe he was a bit, little bit less polite, as like, you know, the, the, the anyone foolish enough who wants to could turn it on or something to that effect. But yeah, so... You mean like users or or people who install these? Well, yeah, I guess anybody who's installing Linux, you would disable it? If you... Well, no, so it would be disabled by default. I did. Right. So you then go... If you decide that you really, really, really care about this, and as Linus put it, you know, these hypothetical vulnerabilities because these are you know it's not that these variants are, are are presenting a clear and present danger they're certainly presenting a hypothetical danger so it's you know the bsd attitude would would 
certainly not be to, to, to live with the risk whereas it's interesting to see the the linux attitude is like we're not taking a 50 percent hit over this you know maybe you know maybe in in the future when this becomes a real attack that's happening in the real world instead of just in university brains <laughs> so yeah it was interesting to see them be so pragmatic because let's face it linux nerds are not always known for their pragmatism <laughs> More their their purity of heart and, and yeah, which is adorable. The like, principle of the thing, <laughs> yeah, which is adorable. And I'm not necessarily saying it's a bad thing. It's just I it just it, it struck me as an interesting approach, and I, I can't say I disagree. Uh, so you agree with Linus? You're saying yeah, oh yeah. I, I mean, I don't think we should be giving everyone a fifty percent hit because, as we keep on saying about these spectral meltdown vulnerabilities. They only are actually a true danger to a very small subset of computer systems, which is basically where you are running shared resources that belong to different human beings in the same CPU. Right, right. And Linux so is an awful lot just more than for that. them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you are okay. Amazon or, or or someone running a, a cloud service, then you need to make a decision about whether or not to turn it on. And even they probably don't want to turn it on just yet, because right now there's no actual in the wild attacks against these. But you would need to keep an eye on it and then be aware that the day may come when you need to put twice as much hardware behind your uh, stuff. Hmm. Which is a bit okay. worrying. Anyway, yeah, yeah. so as I say, you know, as we knew it would happen, the Spectre and Meltdown story continues to evolve. So it's only a one week's worth of news. So I decided that we could we could afford to have two security mediums. So... The first one I have titled, Don't Misunderstand the Padlock. And... To some extent, I think we're preaching at the choir here, but maybe that's no bad thing every now and then, because there is a particularly bad half-truth that you hear trotted around by a lot of people. And I don't think any of our listeners are going to be the ones trotting around this half-truth, but our listeners may be in a position to intercept this half-truth and um, interject with it, actually, no. Uh, And it's an important one. So... There's a company called Fish Labs who do analytics. Uh, they basically offer anti-phishing services, and so they're obviously very interested in what's going on in the world of phishing. And so they monitor phishing websites, and they track various statistics, and they release reports about such things. So their latest report has found that 49%, which is darn near half, of the phishing sites that were active in the previous quarter had valid TLS certificates, i.e. they were HTTPS and the any user visiting them would not get any kind of certificate error. They were valid HTTPS websites. That seems very odd to me. Let me ask, maybe I'm being naive, okay. but I thought in order to get a TLS certificate, you would have to identify yourself in some way? You would have to, yes. Your identification is the domain name that the certificate is for. Just the domain name. Yes, they are. So a normal certificate that isn't the extended validation extra green certificate is a domain control validation certificate. The certificate certifies exactly one thing, that the server you are visiting is actually at the URL in your address bar. Now, how do phishing sites work? They send you to a different place than you thought you were going. But if the place you're going to is the place you're at, then it would be a padlock? Exactly. Is that right? Exactly. Domain control validation. I have sent you to paypool.com. You are genuinely at paypool.com. There is no certificate error here. But you can't track somebody down who created paypool.com because they 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 applied for and received this TLS certificate? You can't find them because of that? 
Not if it's a domain control validation certificate, because it's not about identifying a person, it's about identifying a computer. Extended validation ties a domain name to an organization. EV certs are very expensive, which is why you will see them on places like paypal.com, but not on, they're very rare, because to get EV, you have to jump through a lot of hoops, which is why there's value in that luminous green version of the padlock, right? So you know the way in Safari, you will see the padlock, you will see green, and you will see a company name in the address bar. That's extended validation. So that I is don't certifying. think I've ever noticed that, Bart. I'm okay. sure you've talked about it because I'm always wrong when I say things like this, but I, I never noticed that some were green and some were not. We have talked about it, but I think it's been a long time because we would have talked about it when EV was released because EV didn't, you know, I don't remember exactly when EV came out, but 10 years ago it didn't exist and now it most certainly does. So if you just go to what Bart What does EV B. stand for one more time? Pardon? What does EV stand for one more time? Extended validation. So a normal certificate is domain control validation. It is simply certifying that you are at what the URL address says you are. So the URL bar is not lying. You have not been man in the middle. You have not had your DNS spoofed. You are where you think you are. Okay. Oh, your audio just changed again. I'm hoping. Yeah, loopback is... Uh launching itself and i have got to figure out how to make it stop doing that so oh, we'll, no. we'll just keep going but okay. if everyone noticed the audio was a little different it's not supposed to be doing that i will make it stop shortly i was <laughs> gonna say sure you now have some is. more content for the show where you can talk about your experiences with the beta version of this product <laughs> <laughs> anyway so um yeah, so an EV, bring up Safari there, just just out of interest, right? And just go to, say, bartb.ie, which has a normal right. DCV certificate. And you're going to see how Safari presents a normal web page that is secure. Right. I see bartbushots.ie, and it's got a little gray padlock next to it. Yeah, so we have the padlock, but we don't have anything particularly colorful, anything particularly extreme right because at this stage having an https certificate is fairly normal it's not an extraordinary thing to have so it doesn't get a very flashy look how great this is right it's very subdued very normal so now go to paypal.com oh everything's green the title and the uh, little lock is green and does it also it's certainly i remember safari used to do this it also says the name of the corporation doesn't it it just says paypal.com does it Oh, okay. Maybe it's Firefox. It's got a green padlock. PayPal Inc. One of the browsers actually puts the name of the company that is tied to the certificate right in the address bar. Okay. Hmm. It's not. It's not Safari. Obviously, it must be one of the other ones because you're right. Safari just has it, but it's very green. And if you do, yeah, actually, Safari isn't presenting this nearly as well as it could. Um, I think Firefox does a better job of EV certs now that I think about it. Um, because the reason it's gone that green color is because PayPal haven't just proved they own PayPal.com. They've also proved that PayPal Inc. is the owner of PayPal.com. So you've okay. tied it not just to a domain, but you've tied the domain to a real world entity. So this wasn't that dumb of a question. No, it wasn't. It was actually the entire point of the exercise. So you actually played <laughs> okay. along as perfectly as I could have wished for. So <laughs> okay, the key point here is that 
some people. So the actual advice you should be giving to people. Actually, no. Let's not skip ahead yet. Let's since we're since there's not much news. Let's actually dig in a little bit deeper. So you you were sort of curious about how you get a certificate, right? So domain control validation. You just have to prove to the certificate authority that you, the person applying for the certificate, are in control of the domain. And so all of the certificate authorities that are trusted by our computers have to play by the same set of rules, which have been. The rules have been created by all the browser makers. They've gotten together, they've established rules, and then all of the certificate authorities abide by the rules. And if they break the rules, they theoretically get removed from the browser. Now, some browsers are quicker to do this than others. Generally speaking, Microsoft and Apple are the slowest because they're a big corporation and they don't want to annoy other big corporations. Uh, which is why Komodo hung around a bit longer in some browsers than in others. But on the whole, they all have to play by the same rules. And well, there are a few, like, there's a few more options than the three I'm going to describe. But in general, if you go to apply for a certificate, you you have to be able to do one of the following three things to prove you own the domain and then to get a handed over the certificate. So the one that seems to be most popular, and I don't understand why, but it's, it seems to be the one people default to, is email validation. So the you apply to the certificate authority. They will then say, okie dokie, would you like to do email validation? You say yes, and they will then give you a, a drop-down list with about five specially sanctioned email addresses. And the, the default one is hostmaster at domain. So if you were to try to get a search for podfeet.com through email validation, you would get to choose, I think, between a hostmaster, webmaster, and one or two others at I podfeet.com. I remember this, and, and I had to go through a bunch of shenanigans because uh, my hosting company said, yep, You've got that address. I say, okay, how do I get into it? Not telling you. (laughs) We eventually cracked the code. They will then email you a random string of hexadecimal glop. And if you give them back the identical random string of hexadecimal glop that they emailed you, then they know you own that domain. And they will issue a certificate. And that's a pain in the backside. I hate email validation. Uh, My favorite one is web validation. They will give you a text file and they tell you, you must put this text file at the root level of your domain. So podfeet.com forward slash this text file. And they will then fetch that web, that text file over HTTP. And if they succeed, then they know you control that domain. Whether or not it's your domain might be another question, but right, you but are it's domain at that control moment validation, control. right? That is all that is being right. valid. That is the certificate. A certificate only asserts the thing it is asserting. Domain control validation asserts control of the domain. Okay, it's like if you get a bachelor of science, it only asserts that you know science. It doesn't assert anything about your knowledge of pastry. <laughs> right, a domain control okay. certificate asserts that you control the domain the certificate is for. This is the thing with security tools. They only do what they're for. They don't do anything else. And people sometimes assume, I see a padlock there for 20 million things. But no, the padlock has exactly one meaning. This is the server that matches the URL in my address bar. So the final way is DNS validation. You have to put a TXT record with the predefined cryptographic glop, and they will then fetch that TXT record. And if they match, then they know you control the domain. So what good is the padlock then? What does that actually mean? Okay, uh, what that actually means is that you're actually where you think you are. If you are at bartb.ie, you are actually at bartb.ie. You have not been man in the middle. You have not had your DNS spoofed and been sent to the complete wrong server altogether. So what it gives you are three security guarantees. Authenticity. This really is bartb.ie. 
integrity. The web page that is arrived at your browser has not been altered since the moment it left that server. So no one has injected malware into it. It is as it was sent. So that's integrity. Even your ISP? (laughs) Even your ISP. No one. No one can get into the middle of an HTTPS conversation. That's the whole point. And then the final guarantee is confidentiality. Not only can they not alter it, they can't see it either. Yeah, nobody else can see it, but nobody the else can site see you're it. talking to. Right, okay. so the value of the padlock is you really are at the domain you think you are, in authenticity. The page you have received has not been tampered with, integrity, and no one has seen it, confidentiality. Hmm. So they are the three things the padlock gives you, and they are extremely valuable things. What the padlock does not tell you is whether the person who runs the website is a nice guy. Hmm. Whether they have your best okay. interest at heart. It tells you nothing about the character of the website. It tells you it is what it says it is. It hasn't been tampered with, and no one has seen it. Huh. Three, three very valuable things, but they are not the same as saying, I am not on a phishing site. I am not on a malicious site. I am not downloading malware. You can securely download the most evil malware in the world. And it can be genuinely from the source. It can be unedited while being sent to you. And no one can have seen you infect yourself with malware. But you're still infecting yourself with malware, right? So we get back to the fact that the padlock is giving you three guarantees, but is only giving you those three guarantees that it guarantees absolutely positively nothing else. And the reason phishing is such a good attack is because it's not exploiting technology. It's not a hack. It is a trick. It's social engineering. So they send you to a link which is similar enough to the site they're attacking, and they then put a clone of that site at this website they legitimately own and have legitimately got an SSL cert for. And if the human being is not paying sufficient attention, then the human being is tricked. So I can go to paypool.com. It's got a gray padlock. It really is paypool.com. And mm-hmm. yet, when they make it look like PayPal.com, that's the trick. Exactly, they're tricking the human, okay. not the technology. Yeah. So it's not a, it's yeah. not a, it's not a hard, it's not a IT hack. It's a organic hack. It's a biology hack. It's a squishy organic bit hack. So the example I give in the show notes is: I could go and register pod-feet.com, and I could then get a valid certificate on it, and I could decide to go into the malware business and decide that the Nasilla Castaways are the best people in the world to steal from. I've no idea why I would do any of this because it's the complete opposite of what I think, but you know what I mean. And it would validate. And if the Nasilla Castaways were to suddenly lose all of their intelligence, which I don't think they would, then they could get tricked. So the problem we have is that the actual advice that you should be giving to people is check the URL to be sure you are where you think you are and to make sure there's a padlock and that there were no security warnings. But the advice you hear given over and over and over again omits the first and last parts of that sentence and leave it at be sure there's a padlock. But without So say, say first, one more time what you should be saying. Check that the URL is actually where you think you are. If you think you're on PayPal, does it actually say paypal.com? Okay. If it does say paypal.com, is there a padlock? And if there is a padlock, did you click buy any errors? Okay. Right? Because you can have a padlock that has errors because there's no valid certificate. Yep. And you can have a padlock, but it says paypal.com. Exactly. 
So, <laughs> the, so the true advice is make sure the browser says what you think it should say. Don't go by any errors as if they're not there for goodness sake and make sure the padlock is there. But that gets truncated to, if you see a padlock, it's grand. Hmm. And that's terrible, 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 terrible advice. Because now half of the phishing sites that are actively in use in the previous three months had a padlock. It's not because there was some sort of hacking going on. It's because getting a padlock only guarantees that you are where you think you are. Or, or sorry, that you are where the browser says you are. But if the browser is telling you you're in the wrong place and you haven't noticed, well, you you know, you thought the certificate said this person was a qualified dentist, but actually they were a qualified... Duntist. Duntist or something, exactly. And the, 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 actually they shouldn't be anywhere near your mouth with a drill, right? It's, the certificate is for something else. And you've just gone, oh, there's a certificate. It must be fine. So Boy, all of this I, is I, I, under, I understand all of this. I'm trying to picture me explaining this to my family. Okay, but the thing is, it's, the advice you give people is always to type the domain in themselves. Right, right. So if but you say I, to people... I've done a typo. Type the address Doggle. in yourself. <laughs> well, typo squatting is generally not the biggest thing these days oh. because large corporations tend to buy up their typos. Oh, Interesting. So what you tend to see is stuff where people exploit the fact that human beings, for very logical reasons, don't understand domains. So you could buy paypal.com.someotherdomain.com. Right. And then if you're not paying attention, you'll see paypal.com in the domain name. You go, yeah, that's paypal.com. But it's actually a subdomain of something else. Yeah. Because the paypal.com isn't on the end. Or some domain name forward slash paypal.com. Well, paypal.com in that case is actually a file name, not a domain name. But again, human beings don't understand URLs and they shouldn't need to. And this is why your advice of just type it in is brilliant. Because you are then saying to the browser where to go. And then if a padlock appears and you've done the typing, well, now you're in a pretty strong position. So your advice is good, which is why I've never tried to correct you, because why would I correct you from saying the right thing? (laughs) I did get some uh, email a while ago from a uh, from a vendor that I've done business with before, and it was clearly his email had been hacked. I mean, it was full of typos. It was telling me to click a link that didn't make any sense, and the domain didn't even look right when I hovered over it. So I I exited that path and created a new email to the guy. Told him his email was hacked, and he was like, "No, no, that's me." <laughs> I was like, oh my God. Okay, you I need said, to. Buy yourself some English lessons. You need to. <laughs> in 5,000 years, I would not have clicked that link. There isn't anything you could have done to get me to click it. It was like, like, adserve.clickbait.ru. I mean, it was just ridiculous. He was like, yeah, it's a service I use. Oh, wow. Dude. Dude. Can I just say, you know, 10 out of 10 gold star for your, you know, ever-present <laughs> vigilance? <laughs> Did my best. Now, the the news gods have been very consistent this week. So when I wrote the show notes first, this was our only security medium. And then yesterday that changed when Mm. Sennheiser decided to wade into HTTPS with both feet and make a colossal mess. And this is wonderful because I would have had, if this had happened next week, I would have had to do all of this explaining about how HTTPS works all over again. So now I just get to extend my explanation with one more little piece of the puzzle and then we're done. So, Oh, good. If you, you still have Safari open, I'm guessing. Yep. So you can click on the little padlock on bartb.ie or podv.com or wherever you are. 
and that will then there'll be a button saying show certificate. And when Wait, you click on that, what you'll actually... you when you click on the lock? Yeah, so click oh, on the that. lock and then you should get a little drop down. And you have to click actually okay. on the lock in Safari. Safari's really picky about this. Other browsers let you yeah. click anywhere in the address bar, I think. Okay. So you click on the lock and then that'll cause a little drop down and then there's a button there calling show certificate. Yeah. Okay, and then finally you'll actually get to see what's going on. So in the show certificate view, you see sort of two white boxes. The bottom box is actually the details of the certificate. If you click the exposure triangle next to details, you'll see everything that's in the certificate. Right, lots of Look glow. at that. What's more interesting to us today is the little white box above that box because that shows the chain of trust. So you'll see that at the bottom of the chain, at the end of the chain, is the actual website that the certificate is for, bartbushas.ie. And then between, uh, sort of going above that, we have another intermediate certificate, which is Let's Encrypt. And then at the very top, we have a root certificate. So these root certificates are really important. These are what's called the trust anchors for HTTPS. And for this system to work, your browser, or in fact your computer, is part of the operating system. Your operating system keeps a record of the certificates for all trusted certificate authorities. So there's actually a file, or a folder, on your computer, managed by the operating system, which contains every root certificate that's considered valid. That is trusted. So, where where did you say that's that's stored? It, it every operating like system does it a little bit differently, or? but it's it's it okay. is a thing the operating system does on a Mac. They are stored in the system keychain. Hmm. So, not in your personal keychain, in the system keychain, which you can access through keychain access if you're curious. Since we have time, you can play along. If you open up keychain access, so uh, let me try to make sure I understand what I even the question I asked. So, you've got this Let's Encrypt authority. And are you saying that certificate is in my keychain? I'm saying that the root certificate at the top of that chain, right? So my end certificate and the intermediate certificate are not stored in your computer permanently. What okay. is stored in your computer permanently is a root certificate. And Okay, DST oh, root CAX3. Yeah. So if you open up keychain and you go to, oh, sorry, keychain access, you'll see that it shows your keychains in the left-hand sidebar. And one of those is named system roots. Okay. That is the list of all of the certificate authorities that a Mac trusts. Oh, okay, so it comes with this. It's part of the operating system, is to okay. have this set of trusted certificates. And one of oh. Apple's jobs oh. as an operating system vendor is to vet all of these people. So let me just do a control A or a command A here and see how many there are. Oh, you don't tell me how many are selected. Well, that's bloody nice of you. A uh, trunk load. A trunk I'd load. I'd say 40 or 50. Yeah. So all of these certificate authorities have been vetted by Apple and they meet Apple's rules and standards and therefore they are trusted. So for a certificate not to throw up an error. 175. Wow. If you right click on it, it tells you how many you're about to copy. Uh Aha, okay. The number just keeps growing. (laughs) Now, for a certificate not to throw up an error, its chain has to end at one of the root certificates in that keychain. Oh, okay. Right, so so BartB.ie and the intermediate certificate are handed to you by my web server. So the way this works is the root certificate digitally signs the intermediate certificate and the intermediate certificate digitally signed my certificate. So you can cryptographically prove that I am the descendant of Let's Encrypt, which is the descendant of the trusted root. And Okay. 
every certificate that Safari doesn't throw an error at has, it is a true statement that there is a chain of trust all the way to one of the roots sitting in that keychain. So every okay. single website you browse through with the padlock doesn't give you an error. At the top of the chain will be one of those 175 certificates. Hmm. And so that is okay. called the anchor of trust. Right, so those 175 certificates are the trust anchor for HTTPS on your Mac. Windows stores them, I believe, in a folder. But the point is, your operating system has this collection of root certificates, and they are the trust anchor for all of HTTPS. And not just HTTPS, anything that uses TLS. So the secure mail protocols used by mail.app, secure encryption used by apps. Anything that uses TLS is going to anchor itself on this list of trusted certificates. This is That's fascinating. So it makes me start thinking about other operating system. I mean, every every BSD, every the operating system in a Raspberry Pi, they all have to have this. They all have to have this. Now, most of them in the open source world don't do all this work themselves because Firefox doesn't use your system's certificate store. Firefox maintain their own certificate store and the Firefox oh, certificate really? store is open source which means that anyone in the world doing open source software can just simply use Firefox's certificate store. And you don't have to use all of Firefox, you can just take the certificate store. Are you still with me? I am, but Lupin came back again. I was just going to say, we we had another audio event. (laughs) Could you hear the hiss? Very briefly, which is why I sort of paused and said, I'll wait to see what happens. (laughs) If you hear it again and then you don't hear from me, that's me frantically trying to make it stop. Close, close, click, 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 click. (laughs) Okay. I did warn Bart before we started that I was running beta software. uh, And I I got to warn Alison back that my router's crashed twice today. So, yay. (laughs) Okay, so, so Firefox then, you said they maintain their own list of the certificate authorities, but you don't have that locally on your your computer if you're using... You do, actually. So Firefox Will can... Will you install it? It, it? So if you install Firefox, you have Firefox's list of trust. If you install Thunderbird, you have Firefox's list of trust. And there's a whole bunch of other open source apps that also piggyback off uh, Firefox's list of trust. In fact, I do it sometimes when I'm running software in Perl and I need, I need to do TLS stuff. I simply include the Mozilla Certificate Authority package from CPAN. Okay. Google also maintained their own list. So Chrome uses its own internal list, which is contained within the Chrome browser. So on your Mac, you have Apple's list, which is used by the OS. And every app that uses Apple's official Mac OS APIs is going to be using the system one. Firefox has its own and Chrome has its own. If you're on Windows, there's a Windows central one. Firefox has its own and Chrome has its own. On Linux, there'll be a Linux central one. Firefox has its own and Chrome has its own. You see the pattern? Yeah, yeah. Um. So, I feel like what, I should have already known this. Have you told us this before? I have, but again, a long time ago, which is why it's good okay. to, to, to visit these things again, right? It's all new to me. Okay. Right, but I see, I see a lot of things, Alison. <laughs> that is all the problem. Win, right? That's it, not the it, problem. You're, right? you're like what my father always said about children. He said, uh, think about children as like wine bottles you're trying to pour a bucket of water into. Just keep pouring because some of it gets hit every time. Exactly. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, right? I... I I hoover up documentaries like you wouldn't believe. I love information. It doesn't all stick. It couldn't possibly all stick. About 1% of it sticks, but still better than zero. Okay, well, that makes me feel a little better. I feel like every week I'm saying, I never heard that before. And you gently say, well, 
I told you that. <laughs> yeah, but it's fine. I don't, you know, I, I don't get cranky about it, right? It's I, I, that's that's, that's why I'm spending so much time digging into this again because we're basically setting ourselves up for what Sennheiser did wrong. So okay, this, yeah, that's right. We were talking about Sennheiser. Yeah. So this, whether it's a folder on Windows or whether it's the system keychain in the Mac, this is just a collection of certificates. And Apple give you a default set, right? But you, if you unlock that keychain here in Keychain Access, you can add more. Mm-hmm. It'll ask you for your password, but it will let you add more. Hmm. Um, you could delete a few if you like. I do not advise you do this, <laughs> oh, but you could. So this gets us to our friends at Sennheiser. They're, so Sennheiser makes headphones. They make headphones. Fancy okay. Pants headphones, which have Fancy Pants features. So Bluetooth and USB have standard APIs for audio, and those APIs give you audio in and out. Right. So those those Bluetooth and USB APIs support microphones and they support headphones. But if you want to do fancy pants stuff, like change the EQ of your headphones and stuff, that's not supported by the standard APIs. So that okay. means you need to run your own app of some sort to communicate with those headphones over some sort of protocol that is not USB audio or Bluetooth audio. So you're installing some sort of app. And the installer for Sennheiser's app, let me just get the name of the app and so people can check if they have it installed or not. It's in the show notes, which are somewhere on my Mac. My, my doc has very, very small icons. This implies I'm doing too much. Um, <laughs> da, 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 da. Scroll, scroll, scroll. You need scroll. a... You need a um, there should be a hack that makes the, the dot crawl around all the corners. Like, so you can have it come down one side across and back up. Oh, that would be kind of cool, actually, have it snake all the way over. It can have three yeah. sides. It can't go up the top. Um, okay, so the app is called Head Setup, because it's obviously for setting up your headphones. Okay. So this app is just a regular app, and like so many apps, when you run the installer, it asks you for your admin username and password so it can do its installery things. And mm-hmm. one of the things it does as part of its installery things is install a root certificate. And that's not necessarily... Well, because they obviously have cryptography to protect the connection to the headphones, which is actually a very sensible thing to do. That's not the bit they did wrong. Okay. That's okay to install a a root certificate? Absolutely it is, right? So Apple, Mm. your OS vendor gives you the standard public ones. But if you work in a corporation, you probably have a few extra. Because if you run your own Microsoft domain, you will actually have a certificate authority that belongs to you, which you use to certify all of your local servers that make up your Active Directory domain. So it's really quite normal to have a few extra root certificates belonging to your corporation. Or if you're using a security product to scan web pages for you, the way that actually works is that you install a root certificate for the antivirus product. And that Hmm. then allows the antivirus product to legitimately intercept the HTTPS connection, view the content, filter it, and then re-encrypt it using the certificate that you now trust to send it the rest of the way. So if you have some sort of edge firewall in your organization that does TLS interception, there'll be a root certificate for that installed as part okay. of the, you know, as part of a, probably a domain policy pushed to every machine on the domain. So it is a legitimate and normal thing to have additional certificates for things you do legitimately. Now, what makes a root certificate work is that it's a key pair. 
the public key is in the certificate and you can send that public key to everyone on planet Earth with zero security implications. It's a public key. It, it's not designed to be a secret. However, if you have the private key, you can create, you can use that private key to legitimately sign a certificate. That's, that is how a certificate authority works. A certificate authority has two jobs. Validate the person applying for the certificate and keep their private key completely, totally, and utterly secret. They are the two things we pay them for. Keep your private okay. key secret and do your due diligence. That's the bit where Sennheiser went wrong. So they installed this root certificate into all of the computers you install their app on. And they did not protect the private key. It was poorly protected and included in the app. So it didn't take attackers a particularly long time to reverse engineer it, which means that they now have the private key. Basically, everyone in the underground, every, every hacker with their salt, has the private key for this Sennheiser certificate. So they can use that private key to create a certificate for any domain on planet Earth. And any computer with the Sennheiser cert will trust that certificate. So if you install this Sennheiser software and someone gets a man-in-the-middle position against you because they're in the same coffee shop as you or because they spoofed your DNS, they can make you believe any server of their choosing is google.com or facebook.com or apple.com or paypal.com or yourbank.com. So that sounds really bad. That is horrifically (laughs) bad. That is as bad as it gets. Losing the private key of a certificate that a computer trusts means that that computer can be conned into trusting any certificate. So the second half of what I was going to say was it would seem to me that the chances of of running into this would be extremely small. First of all, you have to have bought Sennheiser headphones. You would have had to have bought or you would have had to have installed this extra piece of software, Mm -hmm. which I think most people who plug in headphones probably don't. That is the saving grace, I think. Now, I think the more expensive your headphones... Sorry. Oh, the more likely you are. Yeah. Yeah, you bought them because they had these cool features. So let's say let's say that increases the, the let's say 60% of the people who bought these headphones did install it. Now, the people who did install it have to also be affected by a man in the middle attack. Right, but that's not as difficult as you might and, and by someone who knows about this particular Right, thing. but the, the thing is the Sennheiser thing is now because it's the same certificate in every single Sennheiser install. So it's not that they have a different certificate. The other way you can do this is to have every installer make a new certificate and install it. Although that doesn't quite get you. Actually, no, that doesn't work. They could have used the actual public key infrastructure and actually had a certificate signed by a real certificate authority. <laughs> that would have... So, yeah. but, but back, there are back other, to yeah. the probability, is it that bad guys just have a big old bucket full of these vulnerabilities and they're just squirting all of them to see which one works on you? Well, see, it depends, right? There's two kinds of attack, right? So there's a kind of attack where you know who has what that you want, which is a targeted attack, right? So you're spearfishing. Right. Right. But a very lucrative attack is just pr- spray and pray and know that 0.1% of what you do is going to work. And if you do a billion things, well, then sold. You don't actually care who you get as long as you get someone. Right, right. And both okay. kinds of attack can be financially very lucrative. 
But the number of people affected by this is probably a very small number. Of the percentage of total internet users, yes. But it won't be a small number of in terms of if you put them all in a room together. It would need to be an extremely large room. <laughs> Maybe. Was it every headphone sold by Sennheiser? Uh, well, basically anything that uses this head setup app. Okay. And Sennheiser is yeah. a pretty major vendor, like. You know, somebody said recently that that um, it's huge if it's you. <laughs> so the, the definition yeah. of huge. <laughs> I mean, you and I both scoffed at the concept of installing an app to run my headphones. I mean, I, I mean, you, you were typing to me, but I could hear the scoff, and I recognized it instantly <laughs> because I made the same noise. But I know a lot right. of, like, if you're the kind of person to buy a set of headphones that give you the power to do custom EQs and stuff, you're going to do it because that's why you pay them two or three hundred euro for, or dollars for those headphones, right? Right, right. Whereas I'm the kind of person who just buys the dirtiest, cheapest headphones because I know I'm going to break them and then, <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm going to break them. So buy cheap and replace often is my approach. I have bought Sennheiser headphones in the past. I'm not going to lie, but they had a headphone jack and I plugged it into the side of my computer, so... Yes, of course, being the massive um, music nerd you are, Alison, you're exactly the target <laughs> audience for this kind of thing. Yeah, EQ. <laughs> yeah, I also am not the target audience for this kind of thing. So the bottom line is, if you install this headset up app, you need to do one of two things. Now, the other thing is, if you ever install this app, because just removing the app won't remove the certificate from your trust store. So if you installed the app, decided it was completely worthless, deleted the app, you are not safe. You are actually the least safe of all because Sennheiser have released an update to the app and the installer for the update will remove the bad certificate. But if you don't run the update, the certificate is there. It's now cruft in your computer oh. until you reinstall your OS. So actually you're better off reinstalling the app so that it can fix itself <laughs> and then uninstalling it again. Or if you feel like it, actually going into your trust store, finding it, and deleting it yourself, whichever you feel is the least hassle. Wow. I would be inclined to go, I don't trust myself not to delete the wrong certificate, so I'd be inclined to go, well, I installed it once, I guess I can do it once more. <laughs> right, you'd have, to, you'd have to go get it. I mean, maybe you owned it a long time ago, right? Yeah. But I mean, I imagine oh, Sennheiser would be quite keen to push it at you. Yeah. So anyway, so that is what's going on with Sennheiser. And the, I mean, you're seeing it reported as Sennheiser break HTTPS, and it's absolutely true. If you have this certificate, HTTPS is worthless on your computer because mm. there, because that is in your trust store and the, and the private key is known. So it really does undermine. Basically, your trust store is become untrustworthy, and that is the, the anchor of trust. That is the foundation on which all of TLS is built, and you your foundation is is jello and that is not good awesome well that was good timing on those two stories uh being back to back that's it really was yeah Yeah. that was fun so then we get to into the normal news so one notable security update microsoft have released a patched version of the patch for outlook 2010 which they had to withdraw earlier this month because it kept on crashing every time you tried to launch outlook so they've had a bad couple of weeks they have they'll be back on target soon well, I, I didn't include it as the story, but I possibly could have. They've also had two outages in the multi-factor authentication this week. Oh, Timing was horrific. Oh, oh, really? I can't go into details, but it, 
it involved doing a demo to very important people at exactly the moment in time when for the first time since we've become a Microsoft customer, their two-factor auth went down. It's like, this is great. This is this is no friction whatsoever. Oh, it's broken. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well done. Microsoft. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So that then brings us on to notable news. Uh, consumer agencies from seven separate European countries have gotten together to, in a coordinated manner, file separate complaints to the national data protection agencies in each of their countries with the same allegation. Does, does that make sense, what I'm trying to say there? Yeah, I don't know what the allegation is yet, though. Yeah, I wanted to make sure at least I got that much right before I went into any more. <laughs> so the allegation is that Google is in breach of the GDPR for collecting location data without appropriate legal basis. Specifically, that the consent for tracking is not freely given. So the, the GDPR says consent must be freely given. And Google are extremely pushy about that lo- location tracking stuff. Like they won't give you a whole bunch of search features if you don't turn on location tracking. And so not instantaneous. Remember, we've had this conversation before because instantaneous location for search makes sense. Storing that forever is not a legitimate... like. It's not a legitimate argument that we need to know where you are now to tell you what stuff is near you now, therefore we have to store it forever. Those That is not valid. And so the argument being made by these uh, consumer agencies is that Google is basically breaking the GDPR by not giving people a real choice. So the... I'm- I think this is the same uh, the same thing. Um, I, I'm trying to find the exact episode. Uh, the Daily Tech News show, let's see, it was for Tuesday, November 27th, and I can give a link in the show notes. Tom Merritt went into a bunch of detail on what I think is this exact topic because it gets real interesting the way the, the way this affects uh, ad networks. Oh, yeah, this I mean- might be different. This might not be the same thing, but but there was a, a big GDPR effect on the way ad networks are done and the way people buy ads and, and how they're interconnected and who is depending on contracts to say, well, they said they were going to protect the data, but it turns out that's not enough. So I think that is a different more, story. Yeah. If you want to know more, Daily Tech News Show, let me get the number. Oh, it doesn't have a number on it for some reason. Anyway, it was November 27th. Tom did a really good review on that. Well, I'm going to have a listen to that because Tom is good at explaining things. So I want to hear yeah. and learn more. <laughs> yeah. So basically, we sort of knew this would happen, right? We had our big GDPR episode. And I think my conclusion at the end was that exactly what this means in the real world would be determined by the courts. We, you know, And that's how all law works, right? Lawmakers write the laws and then everyone kind of goes, well, I wonder what that really means. And the companies push the boundaries. to, Like a child, you test your boundaries and you see what happens. So this is not, to me, a scandal. I mean, it is in Google's interest to do as much as the law allows, and it is in the consumer agency's interest to protect their to protect consumers as much as the law allows. And so we are going to discover what exactly does the law allow. And the advertorial system is perfect here. So this isn't a scandal. This is a really important news story. Yeah, yeah. It'll it'll affect how other things are decided in the future too, right? Exactly, that's it. Exactly. So the GDPR is new; it is untested. It is untested isn't even the right word. I guess it's un. It just hasn't been used for real, and so the courts now have to actually start to put structure around this law in terms of, 
you know, legal precedent. And so this is this is a part of the process. This is normal. This is not Google being evil. This is a question of what does GDPR actually mean here on planet Earth? And so this is a really important case to watch, not something to go get cranky about now. But it's still important. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Facebook had a really weird bug, which, to be honest, this isn't this isn't an auga auga story. This is a oh how interesting. So there was a bug in Facebook Messenger which caused old Messenger messages to appear as new. But the take home for me was, hey, look how long Facebook stores everything. These are your private messages. They don't really have a long-term use. But Facebook store them forever anyway. Because, of course, it's their job to have as much data on you as they can have. And this sort of underlines that fact to people because it's out of people's consciousness that this stuff is stored forever until old messages just reappear out of nowhere. And initially it's like, Haha, that's kind of funny. It's like, ooh, ooh. Well, I guess I would have expected that they were saving my data if they didn't. Right, but these are I mean, instant it, messages. It, these are not, this yeah. is not posts. This is not photos, this is not videos, this is instant messaging being archived forever. It, understanding Facebook's business model, it makes perfect sense to me, but I'm not sure if your average Facebook user is thinking about the fact that everything you type into that little message box that you're thinking of as just a, an ephemeral conversation is anything but ephemeral. Hmm. So again, it's, it, it's a huh story, not, you know, you could argue there's no, you know, Newsflash, dog bites man. But maybe it's a good reminder. You know, the dog is always biting the man. This is what Facebook do. It, you know, this is their business model. Interesting. Uh, and then finally, an interesting story from the UK, and this is not good interesting. Um, the technical director of the UK's National Cybersecurity Centre, which is part of GCHQ, which is basically the British equivalent of the NSA, and that's a lot of acronyms, uh, did something that these agencies don't do very often. He wrote an editorial in a major UK newspaper. And in the editorial, he argued that uh, what the British government should do is force by law... Um, messaging companies to be able to be compelled to add extra keys into the encryption for encrypted messaging, which is basically the the weak point in all encryption other than raw signal where you manage the keys yourself. So the reason that, was... that iMessages is easy to use despite being very strongly encrypted is that Apple manages the keys for you. So you're trusting Apple to manage the keys. And so the suggestion here is that Apple and Facebook should be compelled to break that trust, compelled to add additional keys into the conversations. Okay, that sounds great. And yes, my audio is weird again. Yes, which is why I just kept talking. I figured you'll be back in a moment. So this is the weak point in the system. This is technologically extremely smart. It is extremely insidious, and it is only an opinion piece in a newspaper. This isn't even a proposed law. But nonetheless, one would hope that this doesn't make it all the way through Parliament. Because it's very insidious. Yeah, I hope not. So that then brings us on to suggested reading. I've put a fair few stars on these since you know we have the time. Um... 
PSA's tips and advice. How to protect your privacy on LinkedIn. A nice life hacker article. My advice, by the way, is delete your LinkedIn profile and run away a million and one miles. But that's also my advice on Facebook. And I know most people won't take it. Just, so you just don't think uh, Microsoft's doing a better job on LinkedIn? since they I do it? not. I do not. LinkedIn, LinkedIn has all of the security skills of Yahoo. <laughs> damning, okay. damning. Yeah, no, LinkedIn's history is extremely poor. Uh, customer service chats are watching what you type before you hit enter. This is, this is right. So the way JavaScript and the internet works is, I mean, you've, you've sort of seen this in programming by stealth. There's an event called on key press. Right. So when you're typing into a web page, the JavaScript can be triggered every time you press a key. Well, there's no reason (laughs) it can't send that key back to the other end of the web server. I mean, it's no different to hitting submit, really. It's just that we send the keystrokes as they go, which is why it's possible to see an indicator that, you know, the agent is typing. Well, the agent knows you're typing, and actually there's no reason the agent can't be told what you're typing. And so this is actually sold on the software. So on the opposite side of this, this is sold as a feature to the people buying customer support software. You can anticipate your customers' questions by watching them as they type. So this is not a scandal or anything. This is just a, you know, typing it and then hitting backspace doesn't mean they didn't see. So if you're in the habit of writing, you freaking moron, right before you say, excuse me, could I please have some assistance? Yep. It's not like a draft you don't hit send on. You know what, though? In general, these these people are helping 14 other people at the same time, and they're not even responding to anything you say for about three minutes after you you hit enter anyway, so... Probably not, but it is, this stuff is being tracked. And it's also actually, to be honest, it's also very useful to, uh, you know, potentially sort of behavior tracking and profiling because watching what people type into web forms. Actually, the other place this is done is if you go onto a website and you almost check out of a shopping cart, but you never hit submit, and then somehow you manage to get an email telling you that you still have your shopping cart, how is that possible? Well, they've (laughs) they've just read your email address as you typed it instead of waiting for you to hit submit. Just so you know, that's something they use. You'll often get a better price if you leave stuff in your cart for a little while. Yeah, because they're desperate. It's like, oh, we almost got a sale. What if we sweeten this a little bit? Yep, yep. So that's actually a a known tip. There we go. And a little warning from Naked Security. Um, it is a thing called a Google Map scammer. Nasty people go onto Google Maps. They use the crowdsourcing features of Google Maps to put fraudulent phone numbers into legitimate businesses so that they can do voice-based phishing effectively. So do not believe the phone number for your bank from Google Maps. Go to your bank's website and get it from there. Because remember, Google Maps is editable by random people on the street, and some random people on the street are evil SOBs. (laughs) This is why we can't have nice things. (laughs) Exactly. That then brings us to notable breaches and privacy violations. So, the big story is Marriott. Four years is how long this breach went on. Oh, no. 50 million guests. Nope. Sorry, 500. Nope. There's a zero missing. Out by a factor of 10. <laughs> oh, boy. Half a billion. 500 million guests. So... I just picked the choice quotes from the Krebs on Security article. So this is actually, so the first quote is actually quoting Marriott. The information includes some combination of name, mailing address, 
phone number, email address, passport number, Starwood preferred guest accommodation information, date of birth, gender, arrival and departure information, reservation date and communication preferences, Marriott said. Marriott added that consumer payment card was protected by encryption, but that the company couldn't rule out the possibility that the attackers also made off with the encryption keys. Oh, no. They got good and proper owned, and the bad guys were in there for four years. The bad guys got an awful lot of stuff if you get yourself embedded for four years. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So this was was a, a money machine for them. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I'm thinking I could fish even Bart if I called you up and said, uh, uh, so, Mr. Bouchots, when you stayed at the uh, Marriott in uh, Rhode Island on the 24th, and um, and I believe that you said you preferred to be contacted in this way. I mean, it's so, even worse, yes. Allison, because my booking is going to predate my arrival. So if you have this information, you know that I am going to be staying somewhere and so you, you know can threaten me with having no bed for the night. Well, but Mr. Bouchard, you're, you're I'm calling in reference to your, your your reservation for tonight. I'm afraid there's been a problem with your credit card, so we haven't been able to reserve the room for you. Can I please get some new payment information from you? While I tell my friend in Rhode Island that you're not going to be home. That too. That there is also the other. Here is a list of names and addresses of people who will not be present. For a while. Wow. Yeah, because they're often Barbados. So how did they not notice for four years? Have they explained that? Uh, yeah, well, partly. Um, the attackers were using encryption to encrypt the stuff they were stealing and slowly filter it out so that the the edge firewall didn't mm-hmm. see credit card numbers flying by. It's a encrypted glop flying by, which didn't raise <laughs> any flags because encrypted glop is indistinguishable from noise. That's what it means to be encrypted. Now, before we got on the show, you were saying it wasn't Marriott Hotels that got, if you had a booking there, it's yeah, property so Marriott owned by Marriott? Own a bunch of different properties. So the problem is their what they brand as their Starwood properties. And f- mm. as best as I can figure out, that basically means everything Marriott owned that doesn't have Marriott stamped across the top of it. Hmm. You know, that's interesting. When you stay at a Marriott hotel, you use your Starwood preferred guest card to get like points and such. Oh, in that case, yeah, it would affect you then. Yeah, you might still be in it. Because oh, a Starwood man. preferred guest seems to be what the problem is. Wow. Yeah, so Marriott well, said pre- yeah, containing guest information tied to reservations made at Starwood properties. Hot dogs. Yeah. All right, moving on. Yeah, so that's a biggie. Um, and news is continuing to break on that one, actually, because that, that's, that's, I think, today or yesterday's story. That's pretty recent. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it, right? Be, Except light be your suspicious. hair on fire? Be suspicious, right? Because okay. you know that phishing information is out there. So just be extra suspicious and keep a. It's always a good idea to keep an eye on your credit card statements. But I think it's a double good idea at the moment. Go back and check four years back too. <laughs> well, see, the, part of part of my very boring Sunday morning ritual is to double check every line on all of my accounts, including PayPal. Oh, that's a good idea. And when you do it once a week, it's not a tedium. Basically, yeah. in the time it takes me to drink my morning cup of tea, they're all done. I have a big cup, but nonetheless, <laughs> it's one cup. Drink slow. 
Uh, LinkedIn are in trouble for targeting ads at 18 million Facebook users. It's not exactly clear where LinkedIn got this list of email addresses of non-LinkedIn members, but they basically managed to get a whole bunch of email addresses of non-LinkedIn members figured out based on... Actually... There's a whole bunch of not clear here. But basically, LinkedIn <laughs> got their hands on 18 million email addresses and then targeted ads at them using Facebook's APIs. And they are getting wow. in trouble for it, as they bloody well should, because they do yeah. not have the right to use those email addresses under GDPR because they're non-LinkedIn members. And yeah. this is just the latest example of LinkedIn doing creepy stuff I don't agree with. P.S. This is Microsoft. It is now, yeah. I wish they hadn't bought them. Yeah, because before then I could be I could uh, although before then I was cranky because they bought Lynda.com which I used to like but when LinkedIn (laughs) bought them I sawed it off (laughs) anyway maybe maybe Microsoft will clean them up maybe and then finally Dell announced that they were targeted by cyber attackers who tried to steal customer names email addresses and hashed passwords but as best as Dell can tell they failed Hmm. So, in an abundance Good. of caution, Dell are contacting people to say change your password, but they're, they are pretty sure that they spotted this before it actually happened, as in they spotted the attack in progress, successfully thwarted it, and are now just being extra careful. Again, this is sort of in line with, who was it last week? It was one of the major companies. Was it Amazon last week? Again, honestly reported what happened because they had left the back door open but they were pretty sure no one had gone through it but this is even better than that we found someone rattling the door handle on our back door but it was locked Hmm. Uh, and we we don't think they managed to sneak by us wow so it sounds scary but actually this is an example this is the kind of thing a company should not be penalized for because this is exactly what we want to see transparency and people should be treated fairly not to mention the door was locked not to mention the door was locked and they noticed Unlike Marriott, who spent four years not noticing that the door was broken. Uh, Again, some news and suggested reading. Only one of them got a star next to it. Um, It's just sort of to to draw a line under the fact that SMS-based two-factor auth, its days really are past. So this is, the headline kind of says it all. The phone went dark, then $1 million dollars was sucked out in a SIM swap crypto heist. Basically, steal some guy's SIM, get the two-factor auth for their Bitcoin wallet, and take all of the Bitcoin, which happened to be worth a million dollars. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and unfortunately the guy was saving that as his college fund for his kids. And more, yeah. Wow. Well, a a really good college or a lot of kids, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, one or the other. Oh, it's it's horrible. 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 Um, There is also a lot of other stories in there, but they're all depressing and horrible. So we'll leave those to people's (laughs) discretion. Uh, And then I have a star next to one story under opinion and analysis. Um, It's... An insider's view, as in, and I mean insider not uh, as in an Apple employee, but an insider as in a successful developer on the Apple ecosystem. And he sort of lays out what he considers to be the weaknesses in Apple's management of the App Store, because basically he says that it is possible to game the App Store, to make crappy apps appear higher up the ratings than they should, and so on and so forth. None of this is catastrophic, as in this isn't like, Auga, Auga, the app store is unsafe. This is like, 
there's a few broken windows here, folks, and really Apple just need to tweak their behavior a bit. So yeah, it's great that they're stopping the really evil stuff like malware and viruses, but actually how's about also stopping dodgy, you know, just, you know, apps that don't actually do anything but charge you $90 for them and stuff like that. It's it's an interesting read hmm. and, and none of it is unfixable, which is actually a good thing, I think. So good that they could uh, explain it to him. Yeah, and it's also, it's very well laid out, very unemotive. It's not, screaming headlines it's not clickbait it's actually a reasoned argument well made and that's the kind of thing that actually has a chance of getting someone's attention in the right way because he's not setting everyone's hackles up he's actually being productive constructive you know, so constructive. hopefully apple reads it yeah exactly so and his apps have received many design awards from apple and been featured in the app store and stuff like that so one would hope his voice carries some weight so it's David Barnard, and it's a really well-written blog post, so link in show notes. Excellent. And I have a palate cleanser for you. And Yay. unlike last week, it's a happy palate cleanser as opposed to a brain bender. <laughs> um, this is a video. Um, the link I have is to an embed in Loop Insight, but it's probably somewhere on YouTube as well. Anyway, an actual... Well, we'll, we'll call him a white hat hacker. He may be grey, I don't know, but he's definitely not black. Um as in hat. Um, Anyway, a hacker breaks down 26 hacking scenes from movies and TV. And what's fascinating, you might assume this is going to be stupid, ridiculous, stupid, ridiculous. No. Quite a lot of them are at least in some ways quite accurate. And some of them are accurate in very many ways. um, Oh, really? Mr. Robot... uh gets like a gold star for being accurate. But a lot of them, even when there's some Hollywood spice to make it look shinier on telly, are actually not nearly as ridiculous as you think. Basically, at one end of the scale, you have Mr. Robot, and at the other end, you have Hackers. That Sandra Bullock film from the 80s. Oh, that that was one of the best. I loved it. <laughs> yeah. So basically, that's as bad as it gets. And then at the other end, you have Mr. Robot, which is as good as it gets. And there's actually quite the spectrum in between. Because I was expecting this to be, you know, a whole bunch of put-downs. But no, it's actually way more interesting than that. So it's, it's, I think it's about a 20-minute video, but I enjoyed every minute of it. Oh, that sounds really fun. I'd like to see that. Yeah, so there you go. There's your, cool. your, your thing to do for this evening. Yeah, I've also... Um Put a link directly to the YouTube video in the show notes. Excellent. Which was nicely auto-playing for me every time I tried to copy the link. Oh, lovely. Just what you wanted. <laughs> as long as you didn't hear it, it was the least of my audio problems for this week. Yeah, and I didn't hear it, so that's all good. Very good. I didn't need to confess, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Bart. Well, this was uh, this was fun. Really, really interesting. I liked uh, the deep dive into the certificate authority stuff. That was fascinating. Yeah, it's, I was, you know, I think it's, I like explaining these kind of topics because we all take that little padlock for granted. But every now and then, it's probably worth flipping up the, 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 well, the bonnet, as I call it. What is it? The hood, you call it? And just reminding ourselves that, you know, the engine has pistons and they go up and down because of sparks. <laughs> right, right. All right, Bert. Well, we will see you now what will be two weeks, but I appreciate you being here three weeks in a row for this. This is great. No problem at all. My pleasure. And until then, wait, not happy computing. It's the other one. Stay patched and stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. 
podfeet.com slash Patreon. That's how you go become a patron of the Podfeet podcast. You want to join our Slack group? Podfeet.com slash Slack. If you like Facebook, podfeet.com slash Facebook. Want to join the uh, live chat over on Discord? Podfeet.com slash chat. If you want to find those Amazon affiliate links, go to podfeet.com slash Amazon. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show like Hay did after being gone for quite a while, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening. Stay subscribed.